Welcome back to the third and final episode of this season of VMP Anthology, the story of Tribe Records. I'm your co-host, Andrew Winnestorfer. On this final episode, we cover the final three albums in your anthology box set, Voices and Rhythms of the Creative Profile, Reflections in the Sea of Nernan, and Farewell to the Welfare. These three final albums represent a tantalizing theoretical on where Tribe Records may have gone next if they had actually stayed open in an operation. They incorporate more funk, more wild electronics, and more songs you could see breaking through at radio, given the right circumstances, and represent the freedom and form that came with running your own label. Tribe would close before the final album in this box could be released, but these three records show clearly that for a label run on a shoestring budget, Tribe had impeccable taste. fifth album in your box set is Harold McKinney's Voices and Rhythms of the Creative Profile, the long-overdue debut LP from Detroit Jazz Institution. McKinney was something of an advisor for Phil and Wendell, since he'd been playing and teaching in Detroit since the 1940s, and helped run the Jazz Institute in Detroit. He'd help organize a label studio time, and ultimately made this deeply spiritual and groove-heavy album that in an alternate universe you could have seen topping the soul charts. Here, I talk with Ethan Egon Alipat about McKinney's role in Tribe and the uniqueness of this record in the Tribe catalog. Let's talk about the Harold McKinney record that's in this box. Um, so it seems like he was kind of like the 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 older advisor for Wendell and Phil yeah. at the, the Jazz Institute. Yeah, yeah, he was. You know, he had been around for a while. He, I think, is, he's not that much, well, you know, he's deceased now, but he wasn't that much older than them, but he was established. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get the feeling that they learned a lot from Harold, which is why it's so cool that, you know, Harold has this incredible album, which is mm-hmm. very different than the other Tribe records, like those choral vocals, you know, they're insane. Yeah. Like jazz dance is just from the minute you hear it, you're like, wow, this is like a thrilling rendition, almost like the cover of all covers of Freedom Jazz Dance. And, you know, you hear that, you know, he incorporated a Moog and at the same time he's been there playing his keyboards and it's, you know, very, you know, centered on community and spirit and, you know, culture and lineage back to Africa. I mean, you know, Harold McKinney was a deep cat and we're thankful that he has this one album on Tribe because other than that, his albums as a leader didn't come out until far later and they were all mainly on cassette done with Wendell Harrison. So this like documents like the elder of the group, I guess you would say the advisor, like you said, kind of like getting down Mm -hmm. with all of his compatriots and he puts together this insane record and it's just uh, still one of my favorite jazz records. Yeah. And it's almost like a, it's a showcase too for not just him, but for like, everybody who is sort of in the tribe orbit when you like read yeah. the credits on that record. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, like they're all like listed on the front cover, like with that beautiful script and that beautiful illustrated cover. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like yeah, everybody, Wendell, Phil, Marcus Belgrave, like. Yeah. It's like a roll call, man. And like, if you think about like when, like when I got that record, like probably 99 by the time I got that record, you know, like looking at that front cover, it was like, whoa, okay. 
you know, like this is serious. Like this is like the coolest looking tribe cover. Like, look at this detail. What are those names again? You read through the names. You're like, wow, these, these are the guys, you know, like they're the ones, you know, these are the people that made these records. Marcus Belgrave, Phil Randland, Wendell Harrison. Oh man, I don't have the Wendell Harrison evening with the devil. I got to find that. Oh, that farewell with the welfare 45. You know, it's like that type of stuff was inspiring back then, you know, just to see how connected all these people were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, yeah, the connective, the connective tissue album is that record yeah. in some ways. Yeah. The sixth album in your tribe box is Reflections in the Sea of Nernan, an album led by drummer Doug Hammond and multi-instrumentalist David Dura. Named after two songs on the album, one of them obviously inspired by Tolkien and the mythical sea in Mordor, it was one of the last tribe releases, and only one of them, to not feature McKinney, Belgrave, Ranlin, or Harrison at all. To talk about the album, I called up Doug Hammond, who, before he made it to Tribe, had played with everyone from Sam and Dave and Smokey Robinson to Charles Mingus. Here, Hammond, who lives in Austria now, talks about how the album came together, playing on early versions of synthesizers, and why the group that made this album really never survived to promote it. So I guess to start off, uh, how did you kind of link up with with Tribe Records? Well, the thing is, I used to, I was living in Detroit up from 1965 to 1970, and when I, and then I moved to California for a year or so, and then I moved to New York, and I was I had to, whenever I go somewhere, I was help find a place I can be organized. There was a place, a little place on St. Mark's Place between First Avenue and Avenue A in New York called Someplace Nice. And uh, whenever somebody came to town, it was a friend of mine, he had this place, like a little social place. He would always try to help people, try to uplift themselves. And I did some solo stuff. So Marcus Belgrave happened to be, well, we, we did this recording in California with David, and we were supposed to actually do it with Strata East. And we were in New York, and then Strata East was going through some, uh, you say, internal adjustments. I would put it that way. I don't know. I don't. You know. And so it was delayed. And Marcus happened to come to town, so naturally I, I brought him over to the someplace nice, and we began to talk. He said, "Well, look, man, you know, you're in the Detroit family. Why don't you put it on a tribe?" I said, "Well, what's tribe?" He said, "Well, we put together a label in Detroit." And I said, "Well." Well, okay, I say, and the and the conditions were like, you know, I'm, we're in uh, control of our own product and stuff like that. So that was clear. So I, I said, we're well, tribe label, but I mean, it's going to be I, label can't own it. I can own. I have to own it. Is it no problem? No problem. So that's what what happened actually, because we had recorded, we had already recorded in California the different fur trading companies, same studio in San Francisco that sometime Santana would go. No way. I mean, so how did those sessions come together? Like when you, so you said Strata East was who you're supposed to put it out on. Like, did they approach you or like, did you just go into the studio and, you know, have the idea that you could go to Strata East? No, no, no. Actually I was in California studying at, at a play. My only year of studying in, in, um, I was living in Oakland and studying in Berkeley at a junior college there. And David Dura actually hooked that up for me with the grant because he was teaching there a little bit. 
So in the process, Otis Harris was out there because he got us, both of us, uh, something kind of small stipendium, stipendium to go to the, you know, to the school and they would, you know, get paid, we get subventions, you know, from the mm-hmm. whatever. And I was also writing all kind of grants, uh, things to get money. So we were there in California and they, David said, well, you know, we have the possibility to record, to record. So I said, really? I mean, I didn't take anything like that serious. So I say, okay. Then I found out it's really serious. I said, oh, my goodness. So we put it together. And my idea was, I said, well, being in California, being the nature of it, this kind of music, I don't really want to do this because I don't like electronics, to be honest. You know, I don't care for electronic instruments. And the Fender Rose is the ugliest instrument in the world. I hate it. So I say, <laughs> I really I can't stand it even to this day. It's an ugly thing. And so David say, well, you know, well, we can put it together. So he, he when when I checked out how what studio and all the stuff, I said, well, this is serious stuff, you know? I said, well, if it's that serious, then I'm going to take it that serious. And the only thing I can put on there that I would really like to do would be moves because nothing else I want to do. I don't want to play like that. I don't want to play. I play funk, blues, and all that, but I didn't want to do that. So I said, mm-hmm. okay. So I decided, I said, okay, this would be a good thing for David and Otis. They can take up take this up and maybe take a band on the road. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to do it. I don't care for that, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea. So we went in the studio. It was serious studio. I said, wow, we're in the studio. Serious. I, so naturally, when we're in the studio a few few days, I take everything completely serious. So mm-hmm. being there, we do it. And uh, actually, there's a group called War. Have you ever heard of War? Yeah, sure. Okay, so the producers of War... We had a we we with the with the with the what we have there. I we submitted it to the people of war, so they they came to San Francisco to hear the group live. Well, Otis Harris decided instead of rehearsing, he drank wine. So we decided, okay, when we do it, we'll do it without the saxophone. <laughs> the people, <laughs> producers say, what happened to the saxophone? That's we were really interested in the saxophone. That was the end. Of it. <laughs> then the other the other thing, there was another offer from some Cashbox magazine came along. Some guys say, well, you know, you two guys, David and Doug, we give you guys a million dollars a piece to write. And you move to England for five years, I said, million dollars. But we own everything and, and we have artist control. I said, forget it, no slavery, fuck that. I don't have five years, I'd be a vegetable still because they're going to ask me to write shit that I don't like anyway. So I said, no. David thought I was crazy. I said, no, forget that. Mm-hmm. So then, then we just had the tape sitting up in New York. We were new. That was in 1972. And I think the record came out in 75. So when when Marcus Gay came, Marcus is quite convinced. He said, man, why, why don't you, you guys sitting on this tape, why don't you just release it with Tribe? And the way the conditions, I said, well, this is a good condition because we have control, we own the stuff, good. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's how it happened. Yeah, so, I mean, I think I have an idea of why, but, like, why why was ownership so important to you in those days? It's still important to me because I don't want anyone else making money off my stuff unless I get the lion's share, lion's share of it. I'm not willing. I mean, I help guys to get record deals with CBS and all this. But the thing is with CBS, they have what they call an A&R man and they want to give you musicians. There's no company that I want to – there's nobody like that to me. If they give me $2 million and I don't have to pay them nothing back, I'll do it. But I don't trust none of it. I don't, I don't want to be a star. 
Mm-hmm. Stardom ain't what I'm after. And there's no company. Their roster of musicians are not going to play for me. I'm, I'm a nobody. They come in and play my shit like, you know, well, you know, wash the dishes. I mean, I know this, you know. So yeah. I say, well, I don't want to be in a big company, and I don't want to be a star, and I don't want somebody telling me what I should do because they don't know my shit. Plus, I see too many guys who have record deals and no work. I said, well, mm-hmm. what kind of shit is that? You give a record deal, and you end up owing them money. I said, well, no, I don't want to do that. I'm, I just be a hardworking. I'm a, I'm a, I'm not a, I'm not a studio guy. I don't like. I can't play. I, I tell you, <laughs> when I was in Detroit, Motown. When I first came to town, because I was already a seasoned drummer coming from the floor. Motown. Said, oh man, you can do everything. So I went in the studio one time. Okay. And that was the worst thing because I had been in jail and all that stuff. And I go in a booth. I say, oh, God, a booth. Then you put on headphones. You got to listen to music on headphones. I say, this fine. So it's like something like out of the, what they call it, uh, Star Wars. It wasn't even Star Wars at that time. I say, this is something like uh, the control man in the booth. I say, this is bullshit. They say, hey, man, this is what's happening, you know. So they said, we give you $125 to work eight hours a day. I said, this is like jail. No, <laughs> this is garbage. I hate headphones. I can't do this. <laughs> I did it one time. I managed to do it. You know, I could do it, but I didn't like it. So I said, why should I do it? I have no children. I have no wife. And what do I do? I mean, I have I have enough work to live. So I don't want to be famous. I want to be effective. And, you know, fame ain't, but fame ain't got nothing to do with quality, you know, so... And then when 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 uh, uh, the unfortunate thing about it is that we did I didn't know anything about I didn't know if you have a record when you do the record you're supposed to promote the record and have people to come to your concerts from the record and sell records I didn't know anything like this mm-hmm. so we did the record and did some went to Detroit I was on the radio I was playing with Lionel Lister Smith and he we go to the radio with Lionel Lister Smith and all of a sudden I'm in the next booth he said what are you doing see my record just came out oh really. <laughs> I said, I said, is it that serious? It was almost like a competition. I hate competition. So I say, I don't like sports at all. So mm-hmm. I say, so he said, well, what are you? I said, well, it's just a record. Now, I was just didn't understand how it works, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand how. But the thing is, I'm glad because I didn't want to go on the road and play that. I, I wouldn't want to sing Wake Up Brothers today. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to do that. I don't want to play that kind of music myself. Because it doesn't, I mean, I like to play it. I love when I play with Smokey Robinson, the Miracles, and Sam and Dave, the, the Five Royals, and Martin. I love that because I'm, I'm the drummer. I'm in the, you know, I'm doing my part. But I would hate to be out front doing that kind of stuff because I, I, I couldn't want to, I would have to get drunk and everything else to do that every day, you know, mm-hmm. because it ain't something I want to do. So I tried to do it with get them to do it. They didn't have any interest. I mean, nobody in that band had any idea of how to have a band. Even to this day, David can have a band, but they were not interested either. So I just that was it. Mm-hmm. And the thing, the, the ironic thing about it is, this is the record that people are more aware of than all the other records I made. Why do you think that is? Well, because it's because it appeals to the commercial. Mine, I guess, the, the people who want to promote commercial electronic stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this is, you know, this is the first, this is what you say, the, how would you say that? Nevo. This fits into the commercialized thought pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, and 
I don't, I don't, I don't think like that. I'm a, I like to make. Uh, I'm, inter- I'm, a, I'm a, a live musician, a live playing musician. And right now, I'm just working on solo because I can't find anybody to play what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned the. I wanted to talk a little bit about the the early electronic because you were working on pretty like early versions of synthesizers on this record, right? That was the real synthesizer, the big, huge, building-sized Moog and Arp. You can't even get that sound today. Right, yeah. I mean, what was that like to, you know, as a drummer who had been, you know, mostly playing live, what was it like to, you know, have access to that and be working on that kind of instrument? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny because... I had I had no idea of the magnitude. I, they say, okay, this is the synthesizer. I say, what? They say, wow, that huge thing. I say, just that was already. I said, wow. So I mean, the sound didn't mean anything. They say, wow, I'll take all that to make this sound cool. Next one, up, big, huge, wow. That's it. You know, I mean, I had no. I, I mean, I, I was not. You know, I played pop music, but I never was into it so much. You know. But mm-hmm. I didn't know that that was. I didn't know anything. I was. I'm a cool. I'm a drummer. Right. <laughs> David was. What I loved about David, he actually made me like the Fender Rose on the record that I never liked. No record of Fender Rose ever made before, or after, and. I like how he mixed the acoustic with the Fender Rose and the and the, and the synthesizers because I, I look at him kind of a genius and that kind of strange shit. And he did that, and I, I was I was like, wow, I even like some shit I don't like. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I jumped over my shadow. That's great to be able to do shit like that. <laughs> The final album in your Tribe Records box set is making its debut here, Farewell to the Welfare. Finished in the final days of the Tribe label, but shelved after one released single, its songs eventually made their way to later albums in different forms. Farewell to the Welfare was Wendell Harrison's final LP for the original run of Tribe Records. Its funky title track, the one single released from the album, became one of the most sought-after records in the Tribe canon thanks to its funky, light grooves. Here, Marcus talked with Wendell about the single and the message behind the record. Ah, 19... Oh, that's 19... uh... 75 or 76, we went, me and Phil went in the studio mm-hmm. again. We've done that again. It's a bigger studio now. And Phil recorded uh, Sounds from the Village. No, Vibes from the Tribe. Mm-hmm. Vibes from the Tribe. And and uh, it was a rare tunes. He got he had like uh, six or seven tunes on that album. And then uh, I recorded a rare tunes. And of one of those tunes that I recorded was "Farewell to the Welfare." Now I was going to put out that album, but I stopped. 
I only put out the 45. I made farewell to welfare 45 in 1976, 75 or 76. And uh, it's a self-determination. You want to you know about the, the vibe of the, the tune itself. It, it was a self-determination expression where you have to do, we were saying, well, uh, we can't be dependent on someone to take care of us. We can't be like handouts for, from the welfare of the government uh, so much. We have to look for our own uh, efforts and, and be more self-determination, dealing with uh, your own businesses, you know, uh, trying to construct your own uh, way of life. Because back in that time, uh, 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 being in the re Republican uh, regime at that particular with Nixon, uh, people was getting kicked off of welfare. Government funds was limited. It was, you know, uh, uh, put the brakes on that. And uh, and and uh, dealing with Sunra again, I saw Sunra support itself. He asked nobody for nothing, you know, in terms of uh, uh, he's always promoting his product and creating stuff that not only support him, but a whole array of other people, you know, that he had brought from Chicago and New York, like John Gilmore, Pat Patrick, uh, Ronnie Borkins, uh, uh, all kinds of people he brought from Chicago uh, 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 dealing with his orchestra, you know, and he was he was supporting them. And uh, even even if he, if he was saying, if Sunrise was saying, well, when you beat, when you, if you play this music and perform with me, I'm gonna put you out there. You're gonna work with other folks. And he said, I don't mind. I don't mind you work with other people. Just come on and do what I want you to do. I'm gonna put you out there, but at least be loyal to me. If I call you, come 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 in and and and. and uh, pay homage, you know, to the Ra, you know. So, and he was right. When, when I, I worked with Sun Ra, all kinds of other people started calling me, you know, uh, to, to do various things. So anyway, farewell to the welfare is, is like a self-determination, uh, building your own thing, building your own way of life, uh, uh, trying to uh, control your own uh, your own destiny, uh, uh, dealing with your kids, you know, uh, supporting your children and whatnot, you know, dealing with your own 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 future. That's it. That's all we have. That concludes this season of VMP Anthology, The Story of Tribe Records. Thank you so much for listening to these podcasts and buying this box set. Each and every one of these boxes ends up being a, a, a passion project for too many people at VMP to name. Um, it takes a lot of us to, to put these together. 
And we are all so grateful for you, the best record-buying populace on Earth, uh, for making these possible and making this our job. Uh, we'll be back very soon uh, with two new seasons of this podcast. One on Herbie Hancock. Those boxes will will be shipping this spring, finally. And uh, we'll also be back with a season and a new box uh, that will make you want to bang your head. That's That's as good of a hint as I can give you. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast was co-hosted by Marcus J. Moore and me, Andrew Winnestorfer, who also executive produced. It was produced by Jonah Graber. A special thanks to Wendell Harrison and Phil Ranelin for their legacy of music. And make sure you pick up Marcus Moore's new book, The Butterfly Effect, wherever you buy books. And as always, remember, listen to more Marcus Belgrave. Marcus Belgrave.